and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Jewish festivals are a unique blend of spiritual time and historical time. The Jewish festivals impose a sense of time that organizes life both by practicing and non-practicing Jews and creates a parallel calendar to the civil calendar. So those who are part of the people of Israel um, live a life that is structured around the Hebrew calendar, which is an amalgam of a solar lunar calendar, and at the same time live, regardless of where they live, in a parallel universe uh, of what we come to call the civil calendar. One of the months, um, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, is called Tishrei. It is during that month that four of the primary uh, observances take place. Two, Rosh Hashanah, known as the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, are especially marked by the solemnity of the liturgy and the music. But shortly after Yom Kippur, the Jewish festival of Sukkot uh, comes to the fore. Sukkot is a biblically commanded festival. We read about it in the Torah. Uh, let me share with you some verses. Um, in Deuteronomy 16, we read the following. The festival of huts, Sukkot is the Hebrew word for huts, you shall make for yourself for seven days when you gather from a threshing floor and winery, and you will rejoice in your festival, you, your son, and your daughter, your servant and maidservant, the Levite, the convert, the orphan, and the widow in your midst. For seven days you shall celebrate for God your Lord in the place which God chose. For your God has blessed you in all your produce and all your handiwork, and you shall be happy. There are other quotations in the Torah, uh, in Exodus and Leviticus, about the holiday of Sukkot, as there are about other festivals. This morning, I want to devote our conversation to this festival of Sukkot. Um, Jews throughout the world will be observing it as you listen to this uh, broadcast. And so with me this morning is Rabbi Sai Stanway. Rabbi Stanway is a rabbi at Temple Beth Miriam in Elbron, New Jersey, and has served there since 1998. Previously, he served congregations in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and La Cruz's New Mexico. Uh, in addition to leading the congregation, he is active in the general community, doing much work in interfaith work and in the extended Jewish community. He is an amateur radio operator, and uh, he has his own podcast about the small things that make Judaism great. It's a joy to welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Sai Stanley. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Uh, well, it's always a pleasure to have you here. And some of our listeners will remember 
that um, you are Canadian by birth, even if you've spent the better part of your adult life uh, south of the 49th parallel. But my heart is still in Canada. Well, that's happy to know. And after the coming election, maybe your body as well. (laughs) So um, let's begin um, right at the start. The Torah talks to us about Sukkot. It says that it shall take place on the 15th day of the month of Tishrei. For those who follow the Hebrew calendar, you can always tell when the 15th of the month is on the Hebrew calendar because there is a full moon. What is Sukkot all about as the Torah describes it? So as the Torah describes it, uh, it is a way to remember uh, the Sukkot, the huts, the the, the little sukkahs that uh, the Israelites, the booths, booths, booths and tabernacles, booths and tabernacles right, uh, built in the desert. And uh, uh, you can actually get a real sense of this because you mentioned that I worked in Las Cruces um, and uh, in New Mexico, they grow uh, all sorts of fruits and vegetables, the one of the primary ones being chili. And exactly in this time of the year, uh, you find people out in the fields picking chili. But these fields are very large, and um, sometimes they need to rest. They need a little siesta at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes they the fields are so big that going back to the, the main house to get some rest or to the camp is, is, is too onerous. And so they actually build sukkahs. And you can actually see sukkahs in the fields in New Mexico. They're not called sukkahs, but that is exactly what they are. And so when I lived in New Mexico, right around this time of the year, uh, you can actually see living sukkahs where people did not build them in order to remember the exodus from Egypt, but built them in order to uh, protect themselves and their families while they were picking uh, um, walnuts or uh, chilies. So are you suggesting that the commandment to build a sukkah is a means of transforming this um, normative pattern of responding to being a nomadic people? The Israelites are traveling from Egypt through the desert, Bamidbar, for 40 years. They have to build some sort of uh, housing, some sort of shelter. And the Torah seems to um, transpose the requirement for shelter into something religious. And I would I would I would say that. But I would also say that there is in every festival uh, an agricultural component. And the agricultural component around Sukkot is, of course, the uh, harvest. And um, uh, what we have is a parallel harvest hut with a religious meaning as well. And the uh, the Torah synthesizes both of these things, and we have a religious symbol. And the religious symbol in the Torah is build huts, okay? But it doesn't tell us anything about how to build a hut. And, and let me just be clear for our listeners, you're suggesting there's even a third meaning, Um and that's historical memory. Correct. 
So that historical memory, one might argue, isn't the exact same as a religious practice. That Absolutely. That, that is correct. So we can build a hut, and that tends to remind us that we were once um, exiles and wanderers, but then there's an overlay of some sort of spiritual nature. And I guess the Torah is not very clear about uh, the spiritual that, nature. That is, so that is have- correct, and that is a very good insight. And I think the uh, the later rabbis picked up on that, and they imbued the uh, the sukkah with more religious meaning. And I'll give you I'll give you an example. As I said a little bit earlier, uh, the, the the Torah says build huts. It doesn't tell you how to build a hut, but the rabbis developed oral traditions that were then codified in what we call the Mishnah. We can do another thing on the Mishnah one day. Uh, and later in the Gemara, uh, which created the Talmud, uh, codified in about 750 of the Common Era, and they devoted an entire tractate to the building and laws of a sukkah. So from five verses in the Torah about Sukkot, about the festival itself, they created an entire uh, uh, chapter. And when I say chapter, we're talking a big book um, on the laws of Sukkot. So they imbued it with religious significance. How did they imbue it with religious significance? They 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 said that the the sukkah must be fragile, and so the fragility reminds us of the fragility of life. They said that the uh, th- that the the ceiling of the sukkah has to uh, be leaky. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, uh, that 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 the standards for the roof of the sukkah is that it leaks, exactly the opposite of the standard uh, in any other uh, in any other place. Um, And now we should remind our listeners that both the Torah and the rabbis were speaking of living in ancient Israel, and rain at this season would not have been something that they were expecting. If you're living in North America. Or in Europe, you might uh, be pleasantly surprised that in the fall um, that you were required to have a leaky roof. Or unpleasantly um, surprised, as the case may or be. Or unpleasantly surprised. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, that. Yeah, and then we would decorate the sukkah with fruit and vegetables, which, of course, reflected the harvest. Um, and I find what the most interesting religious slash spiritual aspect of the sukkah is, which is nowhere mentioned in the Torah, is the is the book that we are supposed to study during the festival, and that is the book of Ecclesiastes, which talks okay, about so before the vanity we get of to life that, and, and all that. I, I want to make sure we come back to that, Rabbi, but let's finish. So we have the Torah that tells us we have the seven-day festival, right. and the Torah tells us that we should build booths. Right, a seven-day festival that we turned into an eight-day festival. Right, which in and of itself is a bit complicated, (laughs) even for those people who've studied it. Right. So we have a seven-day festival, which is elongated to eight. The Torah tells us that we should live in booths, but really doesn't give us any specificity of how these booths are to be built. Mm -hmm. Um, And in many ways, gives us three different understandings of what the booths are. They should be remind you of that you left Egypt, 
They should remind you of the harvest and they should remind you of the fragility of life. I would say that's perfectly right. Okay, good. Then in addition to that, um, we are told that the festival of Sukkot in the Torah um, is supposed to um, have um, four different agricultural species. Ah, right. Now, those four um, different species is called the lulav. Right. Uh, and the lulav, perhaps you can describe for our listeners. Okay. So the lulav uh, is a little bit of a misnomer because lulav means a palm frond. Okay. So we have this, I, I don't have my lulav with me, but we have a very long palm frond. And uh, on either side of the palm frond, on one side are willows, on the other side are myrtles. And we also well, the leaves of which the le- from well they're on a st- they're on a small they're on twig. a stem they're on a stem right that's the word I'm looking for uh, <laughs> they're on a stem and they are placed in the uh, uh, in, in this little bundle and then we have a citrus fruit uh, which is called an etrog and then with all of these fruits and all of these uh, um, uh, uh, lulavs. We are th- th- there is an entire genre of literature of what makes a lulav the best lulav, and what makes it a good lulav, and what makes it a kosher lulav. So, just for example, the etrog is uh, the most fragile part of the lulav. Okay, and uh, imagine a lemon with a little stem on it. Uh, the stem is called either a pitom or a pitma. And it's a little stem. It's where the flower came from when, 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 when the fruit was uh, um, um, uh, germinated. Um, anyways, the, the, the fruit is picked and packaged very carefully. And when we look at the uh, etrog before we buy it, we have to examine it very carefully to make sure that there are no scratches in it, no tears in it, that the, the little stem where the flower was is intact. And in fact, taking off that stem where the flower was makes the etrog not kosher, which means the entire lulav is not kosher. So it, you know, and, and there's all sorts of stories and symbolism of the lulav. But it's interesting because in the Torah, it says you shall take these species. So the Torah is very um, sparse in assigning meaning to these symbols. <laughs> yep, that's correct. It simply is uh, didactic. Right. Build a hut. Build a hut. The hut will remind you of your harvest and the hut will remind you of your exodus. You will take these four um species, they call them, and you will do something with them as part of this festival. That's exactly. It doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us anything about what we're supposed to do with them. Good. So now we have this biblical festival, which, as I read to our listeners, seems to imply that you're going to observe at Hamakom, the place which God will show you. Right which was always understood to be the temple in Jerusalem. Correct. And that 
this festival, along with the festival of Passover, Pesach, and Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which is similar to Pentecost for those who are Christian, 50 days after Easter and 50 days after Passover, are also pilgrimage festivals. So let me just add a little something going back to your Hamakom thing. When the Torah was written, they didn't know from Jerusalem. The, 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 the idea of the place where God has chosen is an interpretation of the, the, the temple in Jerusalem. But interestingly, you want to add a spiritual dimension to this, Steve. Hamakom is another name for God. Correct. And so where is the sukkah? Where is the lulav? It is in the place where God dwells. In other words, your lulav, your sukkah, need not be at the temple in Jerusalem. It can be in your own backyard. So we've helped all of our listeners recognize that in the sparseness of biblical language, the later rabbis found a great need to interpret that it was impossible to accept the literal nature of this language. Right. Which is, which, which is, of course, the story of Judaism, because the, 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 the conversation about the Torah is always a conversation of we who study called Torah. This is Torah. And Torah is a constant interpretation and reinterpretation. So one of the interpretations, one of the discussions um, in the Midrash, which is a, an exposition of, uh, of, 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 uh, of text, one of them says, you know, how do you, um, uh, how do you interpret the idea of God's glory? Okay. And this is the idea of a sukkah. You know, it, it represents God's glory and a, a covering of peace over you. And there, are, there's one family or one camp that says, oh, it's a physical sukkah, just like we're talking about. But there's another equally valid camp that says it doesn't have to be a physical sukkah. It is a spiritual sukkah, namely the idea that God is covering us. In the prayers, we often say, ufros alenu sukkat shlomecha. Spread over us the shelter of wholeness, a right. sukkah of wholeness. A sukkah no of doubt, peace. A sukkah of peace. That's, and there's that, no exactly. doubt that the rabbis who crafted the prayer book weren't thinking, um, since that prayer would be offered every day, that you would live in a sukkah every right. day, since Correct. you were only commanded to live in it for seven days. Right. So the prayer spiritualized the biblical commandment. So we've got this ongoing nature journey from the words of the Torah to um, the rabbi's interpretation, which is, as you've so wonderfully helped our listeners um, hear, is the process from the concrete to the more ephemeral. And where I first in, uh, interrupted you where was where you wanted to start talking about the Megillah, the text that's assigned for supplementary reading. So let's just remind our listeners that every one of the minor festivals has a scroll, a Megillah, that's assigned to it for uh, additional reading. Correct. And on Sukkot, as you said, the... Uh, 
scroll that's assigned. Uh, we call it a scroll even today, of course. You, in some synagogues, you can find scrolls, but mostly they're books. The Migilah, the word for scroll, is Ecclesiastes. Kohelet, exactly. Kohelet. So what is that book? What is that book? That is the $64,000 question because <laughs> nobody knows. So let me, I, I was doing my doctorate with a study in Kohelet. And one of the great questions is, where did it come from? And the answer is, we don't know, because it is the strangest book in the Bible. It begins, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The whole world is vanity. No matter what you do, you're going to end up as dust. You're doomed. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the Targum, which is the Aramaic interpretation of Ecclesiastes, is even more dour. So there's a couple of, there are a couple of explanations that the rabbis give us, because remember, the rabbis acquired this tradition of reading the book of Ecclesiastes. So the, the, the first tradition, um, which is really a beautiful tradition, is that it was written by King Solomon. Well, once something is ascribed to King Solomon, it's in the Bible. Okay? So there were three books ascribed to King Solomon. One was the uh, the Song of Songs, when he was a young man and very attractive, and uh, he was was uh, active, let's say. <laughs> the Song of Songs is usually identified as some sort of erotic poem. It is an erotic poem, and that's another bizarre book of the Bible. The second book that is ascribed to him are the book of Proverbs, when he became a little more settled, when he was wiser, when he had some life experience, when when he was able to put down in words great wisdom. And so that's the book of Proverbs. And then in his old age, you can imagine him looking back, sitting on a tree, so I'm saying, oi, what did I do? What a waste of time this was. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the tradition of Ecclesiastes. We do not know exactly where it came from, but we do know that um, uh, there is great evidence that the last chapter was added uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes because it, it wouldn't have ended otherwise. So the book of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You're all going to end up as dust. And then at the end of the book, it says, but wait, that doesn't matter because you can still make your lives holy. You can still do wonderful and holy things and serve God and do the commandments and, you know, decorate your sukkah and make your life beautiful. Um, and, and so that's why it was included. Why was it assigned to Sukkot? Simply because of the last chapter? No, I think it was assigned to Sukkot because the symbol of the sukkah being such a temporary structure, um, uh, is uh, it, it, it feeds in beautifully with the theme of life's fragility as well. There is a wonderful midrash, <laughs> which I will share with your listeners. Uh, and Steve, undoubtedly, you know this midrash. It says, you know, look, the, the, the midrash says, look how wonderful the creation is. Um, and that if you took a gourd, they use the word botsina, um, uh, which means a gourd or a pumpkin, and, and uh, uh, you just let it sit there, nothing will happen to it. Um, and yet, if you take a tiny pinhole and put a pinhole in this gourd in, in a week, it'll disappear. 
It'll, it'll rot from the inside. And it, 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 it's used uh, in parallel with a human being. A human being is filled with holes, and yet we, we, don't, uh, uh, we don't decompose from the inside. Expires. We don't expire in a week. We don't expire in a week. And the, the, uh, uh, the gourd um, is, is symbolic of the, um, uh, of the fragility of everything that we are. It's such an interesting journey from that which is concrete in the Torah to that which becomes spiritualized in later life mm -hmm. as um, our covenantal traditions move from what's called Israelite religion, centering around the Torah, centering around uh, temple sacrifice in Jerusalem, to what you and I today call Judaism. And Judaism mm -hmm. would be how to actualize the words of the Torah in a very concrete manner. So we build a sukkah. And as you suggested, right. the Talmud um, spends great amount of time and energy telling us what constitutes a kosher sukkah. And, and one of the themes is what constitutes permanency and what constitutes temporary. So a sukkah can't be... It's really a good insight. And also, uh, when we move from Torah-centric, where, where, where the Torah is the only book that the Israelites have, uh, the, the traditions of the Torah, the only book that the Israelites have, to the rabbinic era, to the, to, to the Pharisaic era, before the rabbinic era, and then the rabbinic era, we come to the inevitable conclusion that Judaism is not what the Torah says. Judaism is what the rabbis tell us the Torah says. And so when we study Torah, we can study the Torah text. But as you so wonderfully said earlier, the Torah text only gives us a rough outline. Build a sukkah. Doesn't tell us nothing about how to build a sukkah. Doesn't tell us anything about the roof. How high does it have to be? What can it be made of? And all that. The rabbis give us guidance on that. And of course, and, nowadays and so today, we do that. Your congregation and Jews around the world will follow both um, the early rabbis and the later rabbis and your own interpretation in how to observe this festival and intermingle the biblical commandments with the rabbi's interpretation of the commandments. And certainly today, the sukkah and the lulav and etrog, which you speak of, which were biblical in design, um, take very, very, take upon themselves very different meanings as rabbis and Jewish perspectives hope to make them um, meaningful in individual Jewish lives. So I'll give you, I'll give you a great example of that. Um, customarily, we would decorate the sukkah with fruits and vegetables and so forth. Well, several years ago, we stopped doing that. Um, and we started decorating our sukkah with canned foods. And then after Sukkot, we would donate all of that food to our local food bank. So we would get the, the idea of a sukkah. We would beautify the mitzvah, which is a really important concept within Judaism. We'll talk about that at Hanukkah. Um, which is very closely related to Sukkot, but I don't want to talk about that yet. Um, uh, but we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll beautify the sukkah and then we'll do another mitzvah of the sukkah 
namely the canned food, and will donate it to uh, uh, another tzedakah, to, to a food bank, and that way we can save lives at the same time that we're lamenting the brevity of life. I think we need to end there, but there's so much more to say. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Sai Stanway of Temple Beth Miriam of Elberon, New Jersey. I want to thank him for his great insights about the holiday of Sukkot. Um, you can hear a podcast of this morning's show on chri.ca website on iTunes, and you can see a visual recording on YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garden, wishing you Chag Sameach, Shalom, and have a good day.